If you have your Bible, and our house crew has some extra Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and put your hand up. Our house crew will get it to you. We're going to dive right into the text this morning, Galatians chapter 3, verse 15 through 29. Uh, the page number is on the screen. And we've been going through this series called Bad Religion. And how many of you guys grew up in bad religion? No, don't put your hand up. I don't want to get anybody in trouble here. But I know I grew up in bad religion. I grew up into, into some really tough legalistic. I was talking to a friend of mine, and she was like, oh, my gosh, was it really like that? I was like, yeah, it was really like that. But praise God for grace. Praise God for Jesus Christ uh, showing us that grace is all. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And we are all about that in this series. So if you've got Galatians 3.15, say, I got it. And if you need a little bit more time, say, give me time. All right, I think everybody's got it. Let's just read through the whole text right now. This is Paul. He's one of the most epic writers in the Bible. Dude was far from God and and was drawn close to God through Jesus Christ, having a personal encounter with him. And now he's writing to a group of believers about some bad religion that's come their way. He's saying, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. So as to make the promises void, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels and by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would have indeed been by the law. But the Spirit imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned under the coming faith until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was a guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ, having put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ. And God's people said, Amen. So I figured something really quirky about myself. I found out something really weird about something that I do. It's just really strange that I do this, and I really noticed it this week. How many of you guys love receiving packages in the mail? Like when you know a box is coming and it's got your name on it and you want to receive it and you can't wait and you're checking uh, uh, USPS.com and you're checking UPS and FedEx and you're checking your tracking number and you're like, when is this package going to get here? And thank God for Amazon Prime, right? It could be like Christmas every two days. 
That package comes. You order it two days later, it shows up at your doorstep. And I've been ordering a lot of packages from Amazon. Being a church planner, you do that. You're ordering a whole bunch of stuff for the church. And being a pastor, you order a whole bunch of stuff, a whole bunch of books for yourself. You're constantly learning. But I recently noticed something I do, or better yet, don't do. It's really weird. I, I really caught myself this time. So just this uh, week, I ordered a package, and it came in the mail, and I was excited about this package coming in the mail, and then when I got it, I walked upstairs, I put it on the table, and I started cleaning around the package. And I was like, I got to open this package, and, you know, let me just clear this space so that I'm able to open it clearly. And then I saw something else I was out of order, so I moved it out of order, and I was just like, man, I want to be able to just uh, dig into this package right now. And then I got a text from my wife who was over at her friend's house, and right now we're down to one car. So she was like, hey, come get me. So I grabbed the package, and I put it in the car with me, drove to uh, her friend's house, picked her up, and she's like, what's this? And I said, well, it's a package that I received. And she was like, why haven't you opened it yet? Oh, I'll open it. Just give me one second. It's really weird that I do that. It's like Christmas as a kid way back when. So when we had Christmas, my parents would do this, right? We'd wrap the presents. Everything would be all great. It would be under the tree. We'll wake up Christmas morning, and what's the first thing every kid does Christmas morning? They shoot over to the Christmas tree. And growing up in a Christian household, my parents were like, oh, oh, before you open those presents, let's have worship. So we sat down, and we had worship. And it was the longest worship that my dad could ever come up with. That story lasted about 2.5 hours. And then afterwards, he's just like, you know, before we take, uh, open the presents, we need to have breakfast, so go wash up. I'm like, come on, really? So we go wash up, and then we'll sit down and have breakfast, and he's just like, but so-and-so is coming over, and I think they've got presents too, so why don't we wait to open them all together? And it's like, this is what I do to myself. I probably have, like, this all the way from my childhood, that whenever I get a gift, I have to, like, prep the time. But here goes the reality, guys. Many of us, let me talk to the Christians in here for a moment. Many of us live our Christian life the exact same way. We accept Jesus Christ by faith as our Lord and Savior, and then we put him up on the shelf and then continue to work to receive the gift that we've already received. He's right there all along, but we feel that I've got to clean this up in my life, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do this right before Jesus fully accepts me. But what happens is the gift is sitting right there. We take it in the car with us. We take him to work with us. But we never open the package. And non-Christians, you guys kind of do this as well, too. So for you... The gift is sitting in the mail. You've already gotten the postcard and said it's coming. You've checked the tracking order. You know it's there. Somebody has told you, hey, I delivered your package for you. But for whatever reason, you will not go to the mail and open the gift that's been given to you. And you wonder why life isn't taking shape. And you wonder why I just can't get a break. And I wonder why everything that I do always amounts to a roadblock and I'm stuck. And the reality is this is the thinking that Paul is talking about in this text. It's an awkward text, right? It sounds like all these promises, all these covenants, and you're like, what? Angels, intermediaries? What is he talking about? Paul is coming 
to address this mindset among the people. He was like, dude, your inheritance is already in the bank. Cash the check, dude. Go get it. Why are you living for tomorrow when today is already here and the gift and the blessing is right here and you can take part in it and you can receive it today? Stop embracing, stop looking towards the future and start embracing God's blessings today. Draw on your inheritance. Point number one, if you've got your teaching sheets, let's Let's get through this text. Let's see what does this have to do with us. How can this shape our lives? Point number one, no one and nothing will change God's plan for me. No one and nothing will change God's plan for me. Check it out how Paul puts it. He says, to give a human example, brothers, this is verse 15, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promise were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean, the law, which came 430 years, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promises uh, avoid. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. He's like, hey, guys, this contract cannot be changed. Now, think about it. In a human and a man-made contract, if you and I made a contract, could a third party come and change our contract? Absolutely not. And he's like, especially 430 years later. How can you change something that happened 430 years below? He's just like, look, when time has passed, when this thing is set in stone, it's not changing. The promise is yours. It's sure. And what he's talking about is this contract, this promise that God made with this guy named Abraham. So this dude, Abraham, was a pagan, which means he wasn't a follower of God. He was just kind of out doing his own thing. He was a wealthy guy, living his life, worrying about just business, taking care of his family. And then out of nowhere, God shows up in his life, and he says, hey, guy, you weren't looking for me. You didn't know me. You didn't deserve me. But guess what? I'm going to make a promise to you. I'm going to make your offspring greater than any number in the world. Look into the skies. You see all those stars? Can you number them? Your offspring is going to be like the stars in the sky. And you know what? Through you, Abraham, the entire world will be blessed. I'm going to make this promise to you that the entire world will be blessed. And this word that he uses, offspring, means seed, right? In Hebrew, it's zera, or in Greek, it's called sperma. And it can be used for agriculture or physiology. Now, as he's telling this story, the people who are listening to it, these people are well-read in the scripture. So they're going back and they're recounting the story of Abraham. But, and they're saying, well, um, uh, Paul, this word that you use, offspring, it was never really used in the plural form. And actually, God is saying that uh, he's talking about the people who would come after him. And we are that people. And so at the end of the day, uh, I don't know what this offspring is talking about, but Paul knew a little bit better because there were certain people in that crowd. There are certain people called Jews, and Jews had a way of talking. And the way they talked was always in riddles. 
And if you go to any rabbinical school, even to this day, you'll find them going back and forth in this riddle type of conversation as they're trying to challenge themselves with scripture. And Paul starts saying, hey, this offspring was promised to you and he is Christ. And immediately, every good Jewish person who knew his word would say, where was the word offspring first used? Okay, it can be agriculture. It could be physiological. So if he's talking about physiology, he's talking about a person. His name is Christ. Let me go back into my archive, go back into my mental encyclopedia. Where was the first time this word offspring was used? Check it out. Genesis 3.15, right in the first three chapters of the Bible. This is God talking. Adam and Eve, the first human creations, are now in the garden. They've made the mistake to follow their own pursuit, follow their own passion. The serpent, the enemy, has come and convinced them, hey, you know what? You don't need this God. You can be smart as God. You can be on his level. You can do his own thing, the same thing that he tells us every single day. Just go pull up by your bootstraps, and you can make it. Just work hard, and life will be good. And so they do that. They take the fruit. They eat. They turn their back on God, and this is what God says to the serpent who sold them this lie. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking about Eve, the first woman created. And he says, and between your offspring, your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And these Jews are like, oh, he's talking about the Messiah. So this promise was actually made about the Messiah. So Abraham was going to be the father of the Messiah. That the promise would come through Abraham, but it wasn't for Abraham. It was for the coming seed, which would be the promised Messiah, who is Christ. God's promise was Abraham was through Christ. Only God could change that. And aren't you glad that whatever God has promised you in your life can't be changed by anyone, by even yourself? You know, we try to self-sabotage. Anybody in here will admit they're a self-sabotager? You got something good going on, and you always find some way to screw it up for yourself. And you know it's coming, too. Oh, I did it again. You knew you were going to do it again. That's your MO. But no one and nothing will change God's plan for me. Point number two. God is the initiator and the guarantor of my future. God is the initiator and guarantor of my future, verses 19 and 20. He says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So here's the deal. The covenant with Abraham was made in Abraham's sleep. So God promises Abraham, I'm going to do this. Uh, I'm going to do this for you. He tells him, and all of a sudden, uh, Abraham has this just kind of cloud come around him, and he gets sleepy, and he goes to bed. And while he's sleeping, God comes, and he passes through the place where Abraham is, and he gives this covenant. He ratifies this deal. He signs the deal, and he says, I'm going to do this for you. 
see, but the individuals that he's talking to, a group of people called the Judaizers, right? And they know about this law that, I mean, they know about this covenant, this promise that God had for the whole world through Abraham. But here's the deal. There was a later law that came as part of their tradition. This guy named Moses, this guy who they revered so much, he was a prophet to them. He stood between God and them. He gave them access to God. He was given another law. And they figured, well, Abraham's law was given to him by in sleep. There was, there was no pomp and circumstance. But this law that came, I mean, it was given on a mountain. There was thunder and lightning and, and the earth was shaking and uh, Moses came down. His hair was white and, and he just, he just, his appearance had changed. And they're like, well, obviously that looks like it's more legit than the first law. Because I mean, if, if the law, the, the first covenant, the first promise that came was as awesome as this, why didn't God do something awesome like that then? See, but Paul says that law that came later was inferior in a couple of ways. See, here's the thing about bad religion. Bad religion is always looking at the externals. Bad religion is always looking, oh, that, that person is well-dressed. That, may, that means that's a person of, of, of high posture in society. I need to get close to them. Oh, you come to church, and you're quiet, and you're just subdued, and you're sitting off on the corner. You must not be special. You come, and you've got tattoos, or you look a little different. You look a little rough. You know what? I can't accept you. Bad religion is always looking at the externals. But Paul calls them out. He says this, this law that came after was inferior in two ways. Remember, God is the initiator and the guarantor of my faith. Let's see what he's talking about here. Number one, law was temporary, he says, because the law was given because people couldn't get their ship together. Individuals were living their lives, and they, they, they couldn't live good lives or holy lives, everything that they did, there's a a place in the Bible where it says everything that man did was evil. And so God puts this law into place, and it was supposed to expose man's inability for perfection. And we we do that today, right? Why, Why do we put laws in place? Because we know people are not perfect. What? Danae is a teacher. Why do you have classroom rules? Because you know if those rules aren't there, people are going to do whatever the heck they want. Those students are going to get wild. Cece. Not joking. No, you're not wild, Cece. You're good. You're good. But it was, it was temporary. It was only supposed to be there until that promise finally came. So the first reason why this law was inferior, it was because it was temporary. And number two, because it required a mediator. See, God gave the Jewish law, this Mosaic law that you've heard about, through angels. And it was put in place by an intermediary. And an intermediary is somebody who goes between two parties. There's a mediator. 
Somebody who stands between you and I. If me and Greg wanted to make a, a, a covenant right now, we wanted to make a contract, we would have somebody who would sign it and say, okay, these two people, I'm a witness, they're making a covenant. But as we realize, God gave the promise to Abraham by himself. And here goes the thing. Abraham didn't do anything to deserve it. Abraham didn't do anything to guarantee that he would fulfill his side of the covenant. In fact, Abraham, like we said, he was asleep. Aren't you glad that we don't have to do anything or be anything for God to come into our lives and shower his grace of Jesus Christ? We can just accept him by faith. God says, I want you and you come all baggage and all. Authenticity is the only requirement. See, a mediator stands between two parties. Bad religion causes us to look at the incidentals. If I work hard, if I gain success, if my business grows, if I have the perfect family, if I've got everything good going, I've got money in the bank, I've got uh, peace all around me, all of a sudden, God loves me. But if things begin to struggle, my health begins to fade, and me and my spouse aren't getting along, or things around me just start falling apart, I don't really know if God is for me. God, where are you? Why aren't you working in my life? See, good religion looks at the essentials. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. If Jesus died and rose again from my sinful behind, God's got to love me because I know who I am. I know what I'm capable of. God is the initiator and the guarantor of my future. Point number three. My Christianity, my Christian maturity will be revealed by my gospel dependency. My Christian maturity will be revealed by my gospel dependency. Let's read verse 21 and 22. He says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? So now he, he's, uh, he, he can get into these people's minds. So they're like, well, what's up with this law that was given? What's up with the Ten Commandments? Shouldn't we follow the Ten Commandments? What are you trying to say, Paul? Is the Ten Commandments out of the question? It says, is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. See, what he's telling them, he says, look, here goes the deal, guys. The law and the grace of God work together. They're not opposed to each other. Grace is higher than the law, but doesn't mean the law is is void. He says this is what the law does. The law comes to reveal who we truly are. The, The law comes to say, you know what? You're not perfect. Here are these rules. Follow them. And if you follow them to the T, you will be perfect. And every time we try to follow the rules, what do we do? We break them. Anyone who's tried to be perfect in here can recognize right now that you failed miserably, every single one of you. 
And if you're perfect, you should not be in here because we say no perfect people a lot. Don't want to make you make me feel bad. I'm a failure. Shoot, my blog says dropouts, failures, but unrelenting optimists. Thank you, Jesus. See, the, the law was a mirror, and I, w- I wish I had a mirror in here. But the law was a mirror. The, the law is supposed to take us and show us where all our impurities are. You ever got up and looked at yourself one day? And you're like, man, I didn't know that blemish was right there. Like, oh, man, is that gray hair? Seriously, some of you guys are in gray hair. I'm not talking about you. I noticed gray hair. You know, just this morning, Lewis tried to pull out my gray hair. I was like, no, that's my crown of wisdom. He was like, you got something in your head. I'm like, no, don't touch it. I know exactly what it is. He's like, you knew exactly what it is. I absolutely, because the mirror tells me. I got wisdom. But the mirror tells us and shows us where all of our impurities are. Before we leave the house to go on that date, we look in the mirror. Before we go to work in the morning, we look in that mirror. Before we have an interview, we look in that mirror. But here goes the thing. The mirror is not supposed to clean us. You don't take the mirror and say, oh, my gosh, I'm so dirty. No, no, the mirror is not supposed to clean us. And that's what the law was supposed to be. It was supposed to be a mirror to show us that we can't be perfect. But grace was supposed to come and wash us with the blood of Jesus and show us that we can be clean through Jesus Christ alone. The law regulated daily living, but couldn't give spiritual life. See, good works done to gain kudos, trying to make myself be better, just reveals how broken we really are, how delusional we really are. You know, some of us walk around and say, I live a good life. I treat people kindly. I, I give to my local church. I volunteer. I don't give anybody the bird when I'm driving. I just do it in my head. You know what? I must be good with God because I've been doing pretty darn good. My business practices are great. I've got integrity on the job. And God reminds us, boy, you are prideful. In the word, it says that even our righteousness, even the things that we think we do so well are like filthy rags because they're all done from a sense of pride. And here goes why it's even worse to try to work your way to God, to try to earn your salvation, because it's an absolute denial of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you feel that you're good enough to accept God without accepting Jesus Christ, you've just said God's son is not worth it. He's not all sufficient. He's not perfect. I can be just like him. So Jesus Christ didn't have to die for me. Verse 23 through 26, and he starts talking about this thing. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law in prison until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. See, this guardian that he's talking about in here, in other translations, is called a tutor. What this individual was, was a well-educated slave. 
So in a wealthy family, you had well-educated slaves that took care of your children. But don't think about it like a, just a regular nanny. Like this individual, yeah, they, they took the child to school and they brought him home and, and, and they made him food. But this individual was also supposed to instruct this child. So when you got the education at school, you came back home, you got instructed there as well too. This individual was not only uh, the individual that looked over you, but this was also your, your disciplinarian. When you acted up, your parents didn't come home and whoop you, unless you grew up in my culture where, dude, mom whoops you, aunt whoops you, little sister whoops you, everybody whoops you. By the time dad comes home, he gets the final whooping. But this individual was like uh, uh, the meanest teacher you can remember in school. Or the craziest boss that you've ever had to work under. You know the ones that just hover? Every little thing they do, you do, they're over you. Well, your assignment, uh, you, did, you didn't dot the I, so I'm going to give you a C off of that. Like, really? You knew exactly what that was. Well, you should have done it right the first time. And this individual just hovered over uh, us. But here goes the real deal. The slave was not the parent. They were only a guardian. Just like the law that was given on, uh, to Moses was not our father. It wasn't to give us life. It just regulated life. And the guardian, at the end of the day, was to prepare all of the children for adulthood. And that's what the law was supposed to do. It was just to prepare us away until Jesus Christ came, till faith was revealed. And we recognized, oh my gosh, I can't live this life on my own. I've just got to get put my faith in Jesus Christ because he's the only perfection there for me. Some of you guys in here remember this story. There's a story in the Bible about the rich young ruler. This, the, this guy, he thought he did everything perfectly. He followed the law to the T. He took the Ten Commandments and was like, check, 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 check. I'm good. But then he comes and asks Jesus a crazy question. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Wait, I thought you just checked all the boxes. Even he knew that after all the good that he thought he had done, there was still a void inside of him. And, and some of us, this is us, we are slaves of right actions, right job, right 401k, right house, right spouse, right kids, right balance, when we should be depending on the right Savior who's already paid for all of our debt, all of our sins, and accepts us just the way we are. And this Savior says, I've come to give you life. The law can't give you life. The good things that you do can't give you life. He says, I've come to give you life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I come to give you life abundantly. See, my Christian maturity will be determined on my gospel dependency. Do I believe in Jesus Christ or am I trying to do this thing on my own? And the thing about it is we have a lot of immature Christians out there. All of us in this room have fallen into that bracket at one point in time where we thought we could earn God's love for us. And he's like, dude, I don't love you more today than the first time you gave your heart to me. In fact, I love you even before then. He says, before I knew you, before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you. Point number four, 
my current standing before God through my faith in Jesus gives me access to God's favor now. My current standing before God through my faith in Jesus gives me access to God's favor now. You don't have to wait. Some of us live these lives where it's just like, well, you know, maybe when I become better, God will bless me. Maybe if I do this right, then God will provide an opportunity for me to be successful. We look at our current standing and we say, maybe if I made myself better, God would be able to bless me a little bit more. Verse 27 and 29 through 29. He says, for as many of you were baptized and what it means, baptism, we talk about baptism in Christianity. All it means is this is an outward expression. We go down into the water and say, we're dying to ourselves and we're being resurrected in Jesus Christ. It's something that the Holy Spirit has already done in my heart. And so what I'm doing is I'm just showing everybody whose I am. He says these individuals who've been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ. He says when we're baptized, we become Members of a new body. We are now in the body of Christ called the church. I love what Derwin Gray says. A pastor of Transformation Church down in North Carolina. I was down there just a week ago. And he says, church is not a destination. It's the last name of a blood-bought people. I'm no longer Mutemwenya. I'm Mutemwenya Church. I am part of a new body. And he says, these individuals have put on Christ. It's a, it's a picture of changing clothes. Anybody played sports when you were young? You came after practice, you're all sweaty, and you couldn't wait to get into those new fresh clothes to go on that date. Because everybody, like, after practice, Friday at night, let me go, let me go grab this date. Let me, let me go to this game if it wasn't the season you were playing in. And that's what he's saying. It says when we put on Christ, we remove, we've exchanged our dirty clothes and we put on new clothes. And as he's talking about this guardian, everybody is following along. Everybody's on the edge of the seat because he's trying to tell the point. He says, you know, when a Roman child or uh, one of these uh, kids who was raised by this guardian, when they become of age, he's progressing in his, in his conversation with them. He says, when they become an adult, they take off the childish robes. And they go put on the Roman toga that we all know about. Because now they're an adult. And that's who we are in Jesus. See, and, and, and he's talking about these distinctions. He says the law gave distinctions between people. There were these societal breakdowns. Jews and Gentiles. It was the people who were in and the people who were not. There was uh, economic breakdowns, the people who were slaves and the people who were masters and those who were free. It's talking about the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots. He's talking about men and women and how women were treated like outcasts in their society. They were just pieces of property. And he's saying there's no longer a distinction. None of those things add value or take away from God's love for you. 
No matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've done, done yesterday, this morning, on the way to church, on the way back from church, there is nothing that will separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. Only through Jesus' blood will you be accepted. And in verse 29, he says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abram's offspring. See, God made the promise to Abram's seed. He made his promise to Jesus. Abraham was just a conduit. And if through faith we're in Christ, then we too are Abram's seed spiritually. We are adult sons and daughters of God. And now let me tell you this. Are you drawing from that inheritance? How are you living your life every day? The deposit is in the bank. If the promised inheritance of God's blessing has been deposited through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, then I would be a fool to bankrupt myself by trying to do things on my own. All I have to do is accept Jesus Christ and withdraw from the inheritance that has already been deposited through his death, burial, and resurrection that I've already received. So this is what I want to leave you with. How about we start drawing from that inheritance? You and I. This is how we can begin to draw from that inheritance that has already been promised to us. We can move from momentary obedience to persevering faith. We can move from momentary obedience to permanent faith. Let me tell you the difference between those two. See, momentary obedience says, I'm going to have to do the right things and be the right person and put myself in the right situation and have the right gains in my life so that I can be validated. But permanent faith says, Jesus Christ is my validation. And through him, I will live out and Take part in the blessings that he's already established for my life today. Not tomorrow. Not when I get to heaven. Not when I get my life right. Not when I stop this addiction. Not when I stop being mean to people. Not when I stop disrespecting my parents. But right now, I'll embrace the blessings that he has for me today. Because he is my perfection. And through my following of Jesus Christ, I will be changed. He is the only one who can change my life. See, changing from momentary obedience, these things that we do, and moving to permanent faith where we can just open the package and receive the inheritance God has given to us, changes everything. And maybe you're in here and you've never accepted Jesus Christ. You've heard us talk a whole lot about him today. You may have heard him uh, about him in other churches or on TV and in all of these places. You've heard about this man named Jesus Christ and you say, you know what? I've been living my life trying to make a way on my own. I've been trying to look for validation in, 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 in things around me. I'm looking for a spouse. I'm looking for a job. I'm looking for a, a, a sense of belonging. And Jesus says, I'm already here. I am everything you need. And all you have to do is put faith in him today. I'm going to ask everybody to bow their heads and close their eyes. If you're in this space today, I I want you to understand that all it takes is one decision. To say, I will put faith. 
I will believe in Jesus' son. I mean, Jesus Christ, God's son. And so if that's you today, this is what I want you to do. I want you to pray this prayer. Just repeat after me. You can do it in your heart. You can do it out loud. You can say, Jesus, today I believe. I'm tired of walking by the mailbox. I'm taking the gift out today. I receive you. I promise to learn more about you. And I pray that you may reveal everything in my life that is not like you and replace it with your perfection, your goodness. And I pray this in your name. Amen.